0: Paul writes this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help the truths of this passage sink deep in us. Lord, that we might might realize, God, how it is that we are sanctified. God, the world that, that we play, the role that You play, help us, oh Lord, to, to get it right. God, give us a, a passion for You, a, a passion that would uh, seek You above all things. And I do pray for the Hook family now, God. I pray You'd be gracious to them. Even if we got an email just early this morning that just all through the night, Ray's mother was um, just struggling more and more to breathe and sleeping most all the time and very little coherency. Um, Lord, I would pray that you might help Ray and Michelle even as the atmosphere is not so good. Um, Lord, so show grace. I pray you'd show grace to us now as we have come to your word which is living and active. God, which can... Penetrate deep in our hearts and give us encouragement and challenge us, God, for how it is that we are living. I pray that hearts even this morning be challenged. I pray that hearts this morning will be comforted. And I pray, Lord, in all things that Christ will be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1875 began a, a convention in um, United Kingdom called the, the Keswick Convention. K-E-S-W-I-C. it's pronounced Keswick. And uh, it's a, it became a central gathering place in the 1870s for the, the higher life movement, which was gaining ground in England at that time. And fundamental to the higher life movement and teaching is the importance of a, a second work of grace after your conversion. And some call it the second blessing or the second touch or being filled with the Holy Spirit. And And with this second work... Of grace, Christians then claim a new perspective on the salvation they have and live a whole more holy and dedicated life of obedience to the Lord as a result of it. And those who have experienced a second blessing often then become evangelists by trying to get others to experience it as well. They'll encourage others, right, to, to seek God, to, to so you can be removed, right? Your, your sin can can be removed. You can overcome them. You can have greater passion than ever before. And this teaching then transcends denominations. Um, In charismatic Pentecostal circles, it goes like this. I was saved when I believed in Jesus, but it was five years later when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's when God really moved me and I became alive in Him. In fundamentalist circles, it might go like this. When I was eight years old, I walked the aisle. But only later in life, when I faced the reality of my sin, did I really fully surrender my life to Christ. And it was at that time that God really did a work in my life. Or in evangelical circles, it might go like this. I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was young, but in college is when I accepted Jesus as my Lord. There's another manifestation of just this second level higher blessing. One man summarized his teaching by this. Christians experience two blessings. The first is getting saved and the second is getting serious. The change is dramatic from a defeated life to a victorious life, from a lower life to a higher life, from a shallow life to a deeper life, from a fruitless life to an abundant life, from being carnal to being spiritual, from merely having Jesus as your Savior to making Jesus your master. So how do people experience a second blessing? Through surrender and faith. Well, maybe you've heard the slogan before, let go and let God. You heard that before? I trust you have. that. That is really the theology that in the early days of the Catholic Convention, that, that was that was taught. Today it's it still meets, but that teaching isn't primary so much anymore. But let me just say this. There's a measure of truth in let go, let God. I mean, you can find a few verses in the Bible declaring something like that. I mean, after all, if you're going to have a Bible conference kind of dedicated to this let go, let God theology, then there's got to be some substance to it. So just just think about it. Peter says... Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Right? That's, that's letting go your anxieties and just saying, God, I'm just trusting. That's, that's let go of God. There's some truth to that. Old Testament, David wrote, cast your burdens on the Lord. He will sustain you. Or Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Right, Just, just trust Him with all your heart. And He'll make your path straight. Or Philippians 4. Even what we've been studying. We'll get to that in a few months. I don't think it'll take a year. I think in a few months we'll get there. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then this peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now there's some degree that let go that God is... Is biblical, but like many doctrines in the Bible, it needs to be balanced with the proper perspective of the whole biblical whole. If you just take those verses and just say that's all your sanctification theology, you'll be in trouble. Because you will miss uh, hundreds of texts in which calling us to exertion in our sanctification. They call us to strive and wage war and to fight and one of those texts is ours this morning here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 to 4, 12 and 13. Just I want you to consider some of these, these verses on sanctification that say you strive. Jesus said it this way If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's talking about striving. That's talking about warfare. That's talking about being serious about your sin. Not just letting go and letting God like carry you along. And even to the point of heaven and hell being at consequence. Paul said it this way, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Paul goes on to describe armor with swords and shields and belts and and shoes. The weapons of warfare to to fight against the devil because he's got flaming arrows that are coming at us and we need to stop, we need to fight, we need to wage war. It's not talking about just let go and let God and go, ah. It's talking about wage war. Paul at the end of his life says, I fought the fight. I finished the course, I've kept the faith. And you almost get the picture of someone who's come back from military battle and lived to tell about it. Like an old war hero who says, I fought that fight. And I finished it, and we conquered and we won. That's what he's saying. Peter said this I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Right? The lusts of our bodies tend towards sin. He says, Fight against them because they're waging war with your soul. It's a fighting terminology. Effort. The writer of Hebrews says it this way without holiness no one will see the Lord. Unless there's a holiness in your life, you won't see the Lord. These verses are a far cry from let go and let God. When the Keswick Convention was in its early days, really pounding this doctrine, J.C. Ryle then responded with a series of 20 sermons in his church, which found their way into a book called Holiness. Maybe you're familiar with this book and, and maybe not. I just want to... Read a little bit from you deep in the introduction. He says this, is it wise to teach believers that they ought not to think so much of fighting and struggling against sin, but ought rather to yield themselves to God and be passive in the hands of Christ? Is this according to the proportion of God's word? I doubt it. He says, but the plain truth is this, that men will persist in confounding two things that differ. That is justification and sanctification. In justification, the word to be addressed to man is believe, only believe. And in sanctification, the word must be watch, pray, and fight. What God has divided, let us not mingle and confuse. And there's a confusion sometimes. In in trying to understand the, the glorious riches, the free grace of the gospel... And yet, all the commands in the Bible that tell us to fight and wage war in our battle for sanctification—and <clears throat> in fact, that is very alive today. In recent years, there's been a resurgence of treasuring the gospel, which we ought to. And it's—I hope well, it's maybe not up there. That's okay. Rejoice in the gospel, right? Philippians. We ought to look at the gospel. We ought to rejoice in it. We ought to glory that we're justified not by our works, but by God's. Work with Jesus on the cross that Jesus removed the wrath that was due to come upon us. He took it upon himself. He redeemed us from our sins. He reconciled us to the Father. And, and with this love of the gospel sometimes can come a, a laxadaisical, easy going, hey, I'm, I'm already justified. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What more do I need to do? I've just given it to God because I believe the gospel but missed these hundreds of verses that speak about striving and efforts. And, and in recent days, Kevin DeYoung has taken up the mantle and, and written his own book. It's called The Hole in Our Holiness. I think it just came out just even one or, or two years ago. And uh, he's battling really uh, um, th- this, this notion that says, we just believe in the gospel and trust and rest in that and let go and let God. Subtitled, Filling the Gap Between Gospel Passion... And the pursuit of godliness. Passion for the gospel and everything that God has done, and yet with the pursuit of godliness. He writes this, Among conservative Christians, there is sometimes the mistaken notion that if we're truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperatives or moral exertion. We are so eager to confuse indicatives, what God has done, and imperatives, what we should do, that we get leery of letting biblical commands lead uncomfortably to the conviction of sin. We're scared of words like diligent, effort, and duty. Pastors don't know how to preach the good news in their sermons and still strongly exhort churchgoers to cleanse themselves from every defilement of body and spirit. We know legalism, salvation by law-keeping, and antinomianism, salvation without the need for law-keeping, are both wrong. But antinomianism feels like a much safer danger. (coughs) (coughs) What Kevin DeYoung writes this morning as we dive into Philippians. My heart is to set before you, I hope, a thoroughly biblical perspective of sanctification. Because that's what our text talks about this morning. It speaks about what we do and what God does in our sanctification. Look at it there again. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, instantly you might say, wait a minute, Steve, there's something wrong there. You've been talking about sanctification, sanctification, but sanctification is nowhere mentioned in these verses. The only thing that's mentioned in these verses is salvation. How is it that it's talking about sanctification? What's up with that? Well, it's a good question. And I merely point out in verse 12, we see the exhortation here is to work out your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation, which of course would be completely unbiblical, completely contrary to what Paul has taught. Titus 3.5 God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which are done in mercy, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. In other words, Philippians, you've been saved through the Gospel of Christ. And he said that. He's talking about that about the Christians, right? And we'll, we'll get that in chapter 1, verse 27, right? You conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You have received the gospel, so conduct yourself in a manner worthy of that. Christ has redeemed you, so work out what that means. Just like in Acts 15 that Darren read for us today, right? Uh, okay, should we be circumcised or not? Do, do we need to keep that in Old Testament law or, or do we not? It's very interesting that Paul had Timothy circumcised who was a Gentile. But he did not have Titus circumcised. There are circumstances, right? To work out your salvation. How is it you're supposed to go about your day? How are you supposed to conduct yourselves? What types of things are you supposed to say in the office, in your neighborhood? Work it out. And Paul, I think, primarily is talking about the church body. Work it out in unity through humility because that's the big thing he's been talking about. This verse, verse 12, comes in context. So then... So you say, well... What's it talking about? In light of was before, so then this is what we need to do. And what came before? Chapter 1, verse 27, I think is the right place to start, is conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that again, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There it is, just a, a unity. You've received the gospel. You've joined with others in the gospel. Philippians, now Walk. In a manner worthy of, of that, which means walk in unity. One spirit, one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Live in gospel community in, in unity. Join to participate in the spread of the gospel together. Because when God saves an individual, He doesn't just save him as an island, He saves him into a community, the church. And a life worthy of the gospel of Christ will work itself out in unity. That's what chapter 2 is about. Paul says this, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, in other words, if the Gospel's true in your life, then, verse 2, make my joy complete. Again, unity things. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. A life worthy of the Gospel will seek out unity. You say, well, how can that be? In a room full of a hundred people, there are normally a hundred different Uh, Opinions about things. Well, that's where humility comes in. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the way unity happens. We see the interests of others and we we lift those above ourselves. It's what Christ did in the Incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who in the form of God came in the form of man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And so then, in light of walking unity, here it is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, let's dig into our text. My title this morning is, is You Work, God Works. You Work, God Works. That happens to be the same as my outline. You Work, point one, God Works, point two. We see our work in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We see God's work in verse 13, God is at work in you, you work, God works. Now in both these verses, the same Greek verb comes to work, comes from energeo, from which we get the word energy, it's talking about energy, movement, effort, work, toil, and when it comes to living the Christian life, we're to put energy into living it out. In fact, the verb in verse twelve is an intensified form of this word. The verb energeto is prefixed with kata, kata energeto, so it means means really work it out, strongly work it out. This is this is effort. Unlike much of the teaching of the Higher Life Movement, taught in the early days of the Keswick Convention, this is not. Work it out, right? Strive and labor. So that's at the end of verse 12. Let's begin at the beginning of verse 12. We've seen so then, brought it into context. Let's look at this next word. My beloved. Telling us this is a loving command. The love that Paul had for the Philippians, obvious for the book, you can see it in chapter 1. They would participated in the Gospel from the first day. When the Gospel came to those in Philippi to the day when Paul was writing the letter, he was rejoicing that the Gospel was Was going forth from this church and in chapter one, verse seven, he says, I have you in my heart. There's an expression of love. And in verse eight, he says, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's a genuine love that Paul had with the Philippians. In fact, his desire, chapter two, verse twenty four, was to go and to be with them. Look at chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren. Whom I long to see. You're my joy and crown. In this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. Uh, calling them beloved isn't just some formal title. He really loved these people. And the effect is this. Is this command to work out your salvation It comes from love. It's not some harsh and uncaring command from a tyrant. No, it's the admonition of someone who loves you. In fact, that's the best thing for the Philippians to do is to work out their salvation. And I say to you, church family, this is good counsel. This is good counsel for all of us. It is loving counsel. It's good for you to seek the Lord. It's good for you to be in His Word. It's good for you to humble yourself. It's good for you to seek the unity of the body. It's a, it's a loving command. So, therefore, my beloved. But it's also an encouraging command. We, we see this in the next phrase. Not Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And those in Philippi would have found this very encouraging because Paul says, "Listen, I already see that you're obeying the Lord. I already see it." You can read about Acts 16 when Paul saw it firsthand. The gospel came to those in Philippi and he and Silas went down to that place of prayer by the river, met with those women, preached the gospel to them. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe in the gospel right through a disturbance. they were thrown in jail. They were singing hymns of praise in jail. Then the Philippian jailer was converted to say they told him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and saved. And though Paul was urged by the authorities to to leave town on another missionary journey, he came back and saw the fruit of what they had done. So he could say here, you've always obeyed in my presence. But also he saw that they obeyed apart from them. And it says here that that now much more you're obeying in my absence. In chapter 4, verse 18, we, we get wind of the fact that Epaphroditus brought a gift from Philippi and certainly updated them with how things were going in Philippi. And and he heard about how they were obeying. And and the news is good. Is that even when Paul wasn't there, they were still obeying. And isn't that the true test of obedience? What you do when no one's looking at you? What you do in in the closet? What you do when your parents... Aren't you around? What do you do when your pastor's not around? How do you speak? How do you act? And Paul says, I wasn't with you, and yet I, I hear from Epaphroditus that you are, are still laboring on for the Gospel. Like I remember growing up in our neighborhood. Right across our street was a party house. And um, you knew full well when the parents were out of town. Because the cars came and, and lined the streets... You hear loud music inside the house that would come outside. You'd hear that and you would hear a noise until the wee hours of the morning. Sometimes firecrackers, sometimes some uh, people mingling a little bit because the kids of the house are rebellious. I'm thankful that at our house we have submissive, obedient children. A few weeks ago, Yvonne and I were able to get away, do some writing and mostly editing for five days. We were holed up in a hotel room. Working hard in the manuscript. In um, this book, in fact, I, I just got from the, the printer this week uh, a preliminary copy of this. I'm going to have several of you volunteer to proofread this. So I thank you for that. Um, but we were, we were writing this book and exercising in the morning, edited the manuscript all day. Sometimes it was, when it was really cold, when that polar vortex came, we just ordered out. They came right to our hotel room. It was wonderful. had a hot tub at night to relax us, and we had a, a wonderful time. But while we are gone, our children were home alone. Chris and SR are ruling the roost. And um, things weren't perfect. We gave him a long list of things to do and uh, several things were, were missed, like laundry and cleaning and taking out the trash. We had double trash last Tuesday. so, um, And so that, that made Yvonne's re-entry into our life again a little bit difficult. But in general, there was uh, we found things in good order. No parties that I know of, right? <laughs> Jeff was watching out for us, right? No parties. All right, that's, that's good. Right. But that's a true test of obedience. What are you going to do when no one's looking? Robert McShane said this, that great Scottish preacher, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And it says you and God all alone. And you're obedient. That's genuine obedience. And what's remarkable here is that Paul said their obedience even increased. He said this, and now much more in my absence. It's almost as if Paul's presence among them was a deterrent in some ways because when he left, they were eagerly obedient to the Lord in all things. Which means that maybe Yvonne and I should get away for some months at a time and maybe Rock Valley Bible Church would go really, really well. Much more in our absence. Um, and one of the reasons why this is encouraging is this, is because this command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling isn't just piling on more. He's, he's not just saying, "Okay, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this." No, Paul isn't laying this burden on them too high to bear. He says, "No, no, no, you're doing well. I've seen it, I've heard about it, and I'm just telling you, you keep going on the course that you have charted." You keep obeying the Lord. You just keep on keeping on doing what you're doing. That's what it means. In fact, this gives us now an insight what it means. Maybe you've had a question. What does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, I I think it's right here. There's a a connection between obeying the Lord and working out your salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, I, I think it is obedience to the Lord, flat out. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Keep obeying is what he is saying. And church family, I would exhort you the same way. I'd exhort you with love. I'd exhort you with encouragement to walk in obedience. Live a life worthy of the Gospel. Live a life of obedience. Yes, we're saved by grace. Yes, we are saved apart from our works, but we are saved for good works. Right, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We know them well, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as all the works that no one should boast. Do you know verse 10? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He saves us totally by His grace so that we would be prepared for good works which God prepares for us. He saves us unto obedience. So work after your obedience. Labor long and hard to obey the Lord. You know, this balance between gospel saving and earnestly seeking the Lord is even right here in Philippians. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. I mean, this is, this is pure Gospel. Paul says this, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Right, Paul, you've just received it. There's rejoicing in the gospel. And how does he act then as a result of that? Well, look at verse 13. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, what do you mean, Paul? You've got this righteousness that's not yours. But, but there is this, this walking in obedience that comes. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, have this attitude that Christ has done everything, so I give him my all. Those two things, working, balanced, perfectly, and then Paul talks, verse 16, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have obtained. And he goes in 17 through 21 of chapter 3 about those, those who, not how we walked, why we walked in a righteous way, not to gain salvation, but it's the fruit of salvation. And Paul says, talking about attitude, here in uh, verse 15, look back at our, our text, he gives us the attitude of how we should work out our salvation. We should work it out with fear, and with trembling, and I say this because this a serious business to seek the Lord when he may be found. Remember when Jesus spoke about gouging out your eye or hacking off your hand? It was a matter of eternity. He says, don't go to hell with a sinful eye. Leave it on earth. Don't go to hell with a sinful hand. Leave it on earth. And it's the fear and trembling that we ought to have. And fear of the Lord will help you in a walk of purity. Proverbs 8.13 says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you fear the Lord, right, you'll, you'll want and desire to do the things He says. You will hate the evil way. You'll walk in the righteous way. And the fear of the Lord often is the power that stirs us. When nobody's watching, Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the good and the evil. Therefore, right fear the Lord and walk in the good. Yes, we're loved with an everlasting gospel. Yes, grace has come to those who believe and God will never, ever, ever take that away. But that doesn't remove our fear of the Lord. We fear Him and so we walk in obedience. And verse 13 really helps us to understand that fear because it begins with the word for. That's an explaining word. It explains why we should work on our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm transitioning now to my second point. You work, verse 12. God works, 13. And here is the fact that God works in our salvation should lead us to fear. I think that's, that's the conclusion there. The fact that God works in our salvation should lead us to fear. I mean, do you, do you see the connection? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is the one working in us. See, that's not what you might expect. What you might expect is this. Brother, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you really need to do good to get to heaven. So he says, or work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it all depends upon you. Right? You need to fear and trouble that maybe you'll be strong enough. But he doesn't say that. He says, work here in salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's working in you. And some of the implications is this. If God would remove His hand, our obedience would cease. Try as hard as we might, our obedience to the Lord is ultimately dependent upon Him. Now we work, verse 12, but the greater reality is this: is that God is working in us, right? So as you think about these two points, right? You work, and God works. Uh, don't don't really think about them. I was explaining this to our small group last Sunday night. So don't really think about them as uh, I do my part, God does His part, we work in the middle, we meet in the middle. Right. I've done my part in obeying God. You've done your part in helping. And we are a happy family as we come together like some some type of agreement. That, that's that's not what verse 13 is saying. Verse 13 is saying that the entire reason why we work out Our salvation with so much effort, with fear and trembling is because God is the one working. God gives the desire. God gives the strength. Desire comes from this word willing, both to will and strength comes with the word working. Um, there's a strength, the power of the inner ghetto for his good pleasure, right? According to what God wants. God works as he will. That's why we need to, to fear. Because we long that he works in our favor. So rather than viewing it like this, uh, I'd, I'd rather have you view it like this, that we are working and laboring and striving and, 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 and waging war, and yet what's happening? is that picture, picture like a big hand, okay? Some big athlete basketball player, you know, who can kind of take his hand and just go all the way. But here's the reality, is that God is the one working and moving us. So that's, a, that's the greater reality And that's the reality that we can't see, we can't understand. From our standpoint, we are working and we are laboring, but really it's God who is here. So why should we fear? Because we don't have control over the God part. Don't we fear and tremble over those things about which we have no control? If we have total control over it, we don't fear much. But it's those things we don't control. And we don't control God working in us. It ought to put a healthy fear in our life. Now we can rest upon the promise of Philippians one 6 i I'm confident in this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We, we can be confident that God's going to work in us, but but you realize that God may work in some more than others? And, and, and it may be that, that God hasn't given you a passion that He's given others. And, and again, in some regard, that's let go let God. God... God, help me, right? Give me that passion, right? God, I'm giving it to You, God. You put it in me. And then I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to run. Keep both those parts. John Piper said it well in his book, When I Don't Desire God. Chapter 3 is entitled, The, the Call to Fight for Joy in God. He commented on this passage, he said this, Philippians two twelve and 13 describe how uh, Christian work is enabled by the work of God within us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for as God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's work in us does not eliminate our work. Rather, it enables our work. We work because He is the one at work in us. Let me say it a different way. We work because He is the one at work in us. Therefore, the fight for joy, sanctification, and working our salvation is possible because God is fighting for us and through us and all our efforts are owing to His deeper work in and through our willing and working. That's why I say our fight for joy is a gift of God. That's why I say our sanctification is a gift of God as He works in us. Well, let me, let me explain. <clears throat> uh, my, my book here, <clears throat> looking Passing by the Field, Looking and learning from life. And all I've done is, is just each, each, each chapter's kind of got some pictures in it and kind of just some things I've seen in life and I just kind of apply some, some lessons for us. Our kids, our kids love this um, because they see the pictures and they start, start reading it. And so maybe, kids, you might like this book when you, it's all done and you get a copy, you can read it. And um, here's an intro I did about making cookies. Okay, making cookies here. Picture in your mind a little girl who longs to make some cookies. Because she's too young to do things herself, her mother needs to help her. The little girl needs help reading the recipe, finding the ingredients, measuring the right amounts, and mixing the ingredients. She needs help placing the dough on the cookie sheet and not in her mouth, placing them in the oven, setting the timer and safely taking the cookies out of the oven. In the end, she proudly announces, Look at the cookies I made! Now certainly she made them, but it was her mother, behind the scenes, who gave direction and counsel and a helping hand wherever needed. Likewise, when we serve the Lord, we may take credit for doing the work. But all the while, it is God who is, Hebrews 13, verse 21, listen to this. God is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. It's almost an exact parallel here to Philippians chapter 2. And that's the picture. And in fact, this picture about us working and God superintending and working in us and through us is, is all over the Bible. Um, I, I really want to finish my message this morning by just looking at a handful of passages that teach this very thing. And may it lead us to a holy fear, knowing that, that, that our life and our sanctification, working out salvation, is ultimately up to God. Alright, so let's get our fingers ready. Let's move forward to Colossians chapter 1. Right at the end of the chapter, the last two verses. Just go forward one page. And here it begins in verse 28, Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. So Paul puts forth his ministry goals in verse 28. We proclaim Jesus and we teach and admonish Jesus with wisdom And here's the aim. Presenting every man complete in Christ. Every man believing. Every man walking with the Lord. Every man resting in Jesus. So how does he do it? He does it with great intensity and passion and work and effort. Look at verse 29. For this purpose I labor. But where does he get this energy to labor? Verse 29. Striving according to the power which mightily works within me. I, I am striving according to the energy, the power, the dunamis, that God gives me. There it is. I'm working, but God has given me that power. God is the fuel. God is is pushing it on. And if you'd ask Paul, Paul, how is it you labor so hard? How is it you never tire? Here's what I think he would say. He said, it's not me. It's God doing His work in me. In fact, because that's exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? So, so turn over there. 1 Corinthians 15, page 138 in your few Bibles, if that's what you have. First Corinthians 15. Now, this speaks about Christ's resurrection, how he appeared to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, he appeared to me also. <clears throat> I want to look at verses 9 and 10. Look at how Paul describes his labor and his work, working on our salvation and God's work in him. He said this, for I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And here's Paul's perspective. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy even to be called an apostle because I resisted the work of God. I persecuted the church. I was killing Christians. I was blaspheming against God. I was a violent aggressor. But God showed great grace and has saved me and is working in me yet. He said, I have labored more than all the apostles. Peter, I've labeled more than Peter. Andrew, labored more than him. James, I've labored more than him. John, labored more than him. I've kept longer hours. I've gone on more journeys. I've been more dedicated to this. And you can just add up the others, right? Whether it's Thomas or Matthew or Philip or Bartholomew. You stack up an apostle and Paul says, I don't think he's saying this prideful. He's saying that my labor and my effort exceeds them all. And yet, what does he say? He says, yet, not I. It's not my labor, but it is the grace of God within me. Paul's laboring, but it's not him. It's God is the one who's laboring. So Paul says, well, let's try Jesus. John 15, page 85 in your few Bibles, if that's where you are. John 15. This is a great story about the vine and the branches. Jesus is talking about, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And obviously, where is the branches getting the source? Let's just let's look at verse four. Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine; you are the branches. You abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and see what what. Jesus is talking about here is this connectedness between vine and fruit, vine and branch. And if branch is on its own, it's not going to bring forth any fruit. That's why when Aaron's rod budded, it was so miraculous because it wasn't connected to anything. But Jesus says this, that the vine, the branch needs to be connected towards the vine to bring forth fruit. And so ultimately it comes down to this, what? What about the fruit? Who makes the fruit? Well, the branch does, right? Because the branch is working. But utterly, it's the vine which is supplying the power and the grace and the help. And Jesus even says it strongly. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? So let's think about how much you're doing apart from Jesus towards your sanctification, working out your salvation. How much are you doing? Jesus says, right? Here's this illustration. You might say, well, the branch is needed. Because it's got to get to the leaves. It's got to bring forth fruit. It's got to flower. It's got to pollinate. It's got to, the branch is necessary. Yes, yes, it's necessary. But Jesus says, don't take this analogy too far. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, when the bro- branch is connected with the vine, it's really the vine that goes in all the way through and brings forth the fruit. Let's try the Old Testament. Psalm 127, right? This is the Old Testament part. 449 in your pew Bibles. If you're there, Psalm 127. It's a very familiar passage. I believe it's teaching the exact same thing. God is, is working it. Psalm 127, "...unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain." It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for He gives to His beloved sleep. You can labor long and hard to build a house or a city, and if God isn't in it, your work is totally in vain. That's what He's talking about here. He says, you can, you can build a house, but if, if the Lord doesn't build it, you've labored in vain. So, But here you are, you're doing something, But unless God is the one doing it, you're you're laboring in vain. I I think you you take that to God guarding a city. If God's God's guarding a city, you're safe and secure in His everlasting arms. If God's not guarding the city, you better fear, because the enemy can come and and take over you. And, And I think you can apply that then to the church. You can apply that to your sanctification. Unless God is working in your life, you will seek to work out your salvation for naught. And that means you can go to church and read your Bible, even memorize large portions of Scripture. And if God isn't in the work, your labor is totally in vain. You've just done a lot of religion, like the Pharisees. Because God is the one who ultimately brings forth prosperity in our labor. Well, let's go back to that Hebrews passage that I talked about before. Hebrews chapter 13, page 177 in the New Testament of our our pew Bibles, if you're there. It's the, the concluding prayer to the book of Hebrews this this is our last text and then I got a quote and we'll we'll finish up here but Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21 after speaking about how, how great Christ is and how we must press on he comes to the end and says now verse 20 now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant even Jesus our Lord May God equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So you look at that, you say, Well, who's doing the equipping? It's God who fashions us and molds us and equips us for every good thing to do His will. It's God who does that. Who does the empowering? Well, it's the Lord who equips us to do His will. Like, almost parallel to Philippians 2, right? That that His working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight. And if I do this enough times, you'll catch it. We are working, but He is working in us to do that which is pleasing in His sight. Well, before we close, I just want to read from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He talks a little bit like making cookies. This is how he... He explained making cookies. He says, Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to His service, you could not give Him anything that was not, in a sense, His own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it's really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. It's all very nice and proper, but C.S. Lewis says, and this is his words, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. In other words, right? He gives the money to the child, the child goes, buys his present, and it's not like. That child still owes him. It's not. God is everything. It's He. That's how He works. He, he gives us life breath in all things. He initiates salvation. He saves us. He works in us for our sanctification, and we give it rightly back to God. And it's all that He ever gave us in the first place. To the praise, the glory, of His grace. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray for Rock Valley Bible Church. I pray, God, that You would give us passion for You. That we indeed would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God, that we would fear knowing that this is, this is out of our control. That we can, um, we can work and labor and strive, but really, God, it's You who work in us. And so, Lord, I would pray that this would cause us to be seekers of You. God, make me to know Your precepts that I may keep them until the end. God, make me to hear joy and gladness. God, give these things to us, as the psalmist says in 119. God, You would incline our heart to fear Your name. God, it's all over our hymns. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What's the answer? Take my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. God, we give You our hearts and our lives. And I pray, Lord, even as we have been challenged this morning, God, and maybe there's there's sin that is in amongst us that we are not repenting of, that we are not turning from, that we in our flesh, may we wage war against the lust of our flesh, as Peter says. And God, may You be the one to work in us, to will and to work for Your good pleasure. That we need You to work. We need You to act. We need You to act the miracle. So I pray, O Lord, that You would do that. In Jesus' name, Amen.